And I think that's very tough. And that sort of self-awareness and ability to to change, especially when you've been used to something for so long, and this gets a little bit into the philosophical side of, of Alexander's technique and why I think it's important um, to be able to change those things and recognize it, you know, you think it's right because you're used to it, but maybe it's not the right way or the best way or the most economical way to do something or, or to think about something. That's uh, that's very humbling. And I would say most people just can't face that. Hi, and welcome to And If Love Remains. I am your host, Mike Lovett, and... I'm here again with our good friend, Elias Axel Pedersen. Thank you for being on the show, Elias. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> Great to be, be back. Long time no see, right? Right? <laughs> right? Well, I love it. I love having you as a regular. I love having you as a co-host with a lot of these guys. But but this time it's just you and I. That's and, right. Um, and we're going to talk about some some cool things. Um, both of us are pianists, and, and so I, I want to kind of introduce... Um, this concept to people and it's called the Alexander technique. And it's something that you introduced me to. And I, and mm-hmm. I did a little bit of reading on, but I just find it so fascinating. It's such an interesting story. Um, and it's something that has truly, I think helped a lot of people. And I think it helped people, um, not just who are pianists, but I think it's a, it's an interesting, it's almost an interesting philosophy. Um, yeah. so let's, let's talk a little bit about that, but, but first, um, introduce yourself as far as like, you know, um, how you got introduced to it and, and why, yeah, start with your story with it. Sure. Yeah. That's, <clears throat> there's a lot to discuss there. And I first want to make a disclaimer about Alexander technique. I, I have studied it for many years and I've taken some, uh, lessons and coachings with, with two main teachers, uh, one in Albuquerque, a wonderful teacher. That's the one I, first got introduced to Karen DeWig, and she's quite high up, actually, in the hierarchy of Alexander Technique. She trains a lot of other Alexander Technique uh, teachers, okay. uh, and then I studied with a fellow up in Montreal. He was associated with my university, uh, and he coached some lessons and classes there, and so I took a few lessons with him, Malcolm Balk, uh, but I am not a practitioner uh, in terms, like, I have not been certified as a trainer, so when I talk right. to you today, I, I'm coming. You're a layman. To, yeah, I, I've I've had a lot of experience with it. I've <clears throat> certainly integrated it in my teaching in the last 15 years, and have taken, you know, 20 some odd lessons with different people, read various books, um, and and talked with various practitioners on it. So, you know, I'm coming to it from that end. the The reason I got into it, and let me uh, also add one oh, more disclaimer that this is not medical advice. Just for the record, yes, yeah, <laughs> we're just not. We're not. just talking about things that have worked for you and and are interesting in in terms of a conversation. Yes, and that becomes an issue too because, you know, like many other, I guess it's not really alternative or medicine per se. I guess it's sort of akin to um, acupuncture, uh, where that's becoming more and more accepted, and I think Western medicine is starting to see a lot of the the uh, principles that work and how it can be helpful to the body. I mean, there are certain fundamentals that just that work and are accepted in, in both systems of thought right. and societies. And same thing with Alexander technique. Clearly there's a lot of foundation that is based on physiology and the body and, and certain things. It just might be described in a, in a different way. And, and it goes into a philosophy and a psychology as well. Uh, it's not just the physical aspect. So um, hopefully people in listening to this discussion and maybe it will take us to other other places but they can learn a little bit about it and and uh, maybe help themselves yeah so absolutely. i got into it because i um there's a summer festival i went to a couple times it's in vermont adamant music school uh, and now i'm i'm actually faculty there which is kind of cool and in the early 2000s i was a student for two summers and then i was going to go a third summer um i'd gotten a full scholarship and I was I was ready to go that day. It was an early flight in the morning, and I just felt awful. You know, I had it had been a very stressful summer, and and I had you know moved back. I think this was right around my graduating from college, and it was just a lot of busy stuff I had taken care of, and, and a lot of stress. And so I just 
did not for some reason feel good about going. I never get nausea or never feel, I mean, I don't like to fly in planes generally, uh, but I'm okay. I mean, and I've flown my whole life. I've flown a lot, but uh, I just could not get going. And I thought there's something going on. I I don't know what it is. I don't feel very well balanced. Uh, Something's going on in my body. So I didn't know what to do. Uh, I'd heard about of course, massage before, and, and I don't think there was any serious medical condition I had. Uh, I just felt really out of whack. So somebody had recommended Alexander Technique, and I called. There are a couple practitioners in Albuquerque. Um, this is where I grew up. And so I called one of them and said, hey, can you know this is what I'm going through. Do you think you, you could help me out? And she said, yes. So I think, I think I can. I can provide you something. So I went, and the first lesson was... Uh, it's very interesting. I had never heard about it. You know, the practitioner basically explained a little bit of the history of who Alexander was, how he came uh, upon this approach. And I, I, she said, basically, here, here's some reading material, you know, read about it, but let's get started. And so pretty soon into, I just arrived for my first lesson and um, introduced myself. She introduced herself and, uh, and she said, okay, you know, have a seat. So I sat down and she said, that was wrong. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? We're just like, have we started yet? Or, you know, I just introduced myself, said, okay, get up. So I stood up. She's like, eh, you're not standing upright. So I said, have a seat. And I was already, let's see, how old was I? Maybe 20, 23 or 24. <laughs> right. I thought, I don't know how to sit down because this is ridiculous. <laughs> but, but then she was explaining that I'm leading with different parts of my body. I'm basically collapsing my uh, my spine a lot as I sit and that's creating some unnecessary tension and you know there there are short-term fi- fixes for that and in western medicine uh, there are things like chiropractic and that that kind of makes a quick fix on things and, and can have some lasting effects but but she was noticing that my musculature and the way I was directing my body was incorrect and then leading to probably these problems and feeling compressed um, and so we talked about kind of how I was feeling the last couple of weeks. And it, it was basically that. So anyway, the, the entire entire lesson, which was about 45 minutes, was spent making sure that I, I knew how to direct my body, giving me a few exercises. And then at the end, what's called a lie down, which is, is much better in a way than a, a massage. But it's, it's a lot about thinking um, what your body is doing, the direction of, of your different joints and limbs and, and how things are in opposition to one another. And I think we'll get into yeah. that, but uh, it was yeah. just very helpful. And after that first lesson, I was, I was sort of sold on the feeling, but I thought I really have to read up on this because I, I have my own science background, of course, pre-med right. background. And I wanted to say, how, how is this all relating? Uh, and I, you know, came to find that it's not just a physical thing. It, it's also uh, a, a philosophy and how we approach things in general. So, yeah, that's my beginning. That's I. I think that's so remarkable, and I, I love that. I, I remember when you first told me about it, and and it was a very similar mm-hmm. thing where you said stand up, and I stood up, and you said, "Oh, that was wrong." Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I was like, "Huh? <laughs> what? Yeah, what yeah. you talking about, Willis?" Anyway, it was yeah, it right. Was, it was. I was. It was so bizarre, but yeah. um. And we will. I want to talk about that, but but let's 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 delve into because I think the history is important and mm-hmm. interesting. It is such a fascinating history. Maybe uh, just just tell a quick background of like who who is this Alexander that we're even talking about? And, yeah, and and why you know what what was he trying to do? Sure. Okay. Well, so his full name is F M Alexander Frederick Matthias Alexander, and he was born in Tasmania, Australia, um, in the mid. 1800s. Uh, I, I think I looked it up online. I don't remember, but let's see here. Uh, 1869. Okay. And he died in, in the 50s, 1955. So uh, he was actually a Shakespearean orator and an actor. And in his uh, sort of in the prime of his career, he he was obviously getting some different roles and, and speaking a lot, sometimes in amphitheaters. And, and of course, when you're orating, you really have to project your voice and he was noticing that and by the way this was what was the year because there there weren't like amplifications like we know today yeah i mean there there weren't microphones and things like this this would have been in the late 1800s you know early right. 1900s that he was uh was doing this and i mean i think recording started in the 18 80s or 90s 
think there are some voice recordings of Brahms and Tchaikovsky that I've heard very. But even old. then, I mean, the, the I mean, it, it it was not the same kind of sound reinforcement. The the, the actor or the performer was was uh, more. They had to do the primary um, projection of their voice. Yes, they had to project, and you know, the design of the amphitheater or the theater or the hall was very important. Uh, and of course, right. you didn't have these huge mega stadiums like we do today. So that was, uh, he really had to project. And, and as a result, even when he was still you know, relatively young and healthy, he was getting, he was having voice problems and getting a sore throat and, and raspy. And, and he thought, gosh, this, this is a terrible thing for an actor and an orator. What, what can I do? So he went to many doctors. And I don't know at this point if he had moved to London or not. I know he died in England um, and he taught there a lot. But um, if he was still doing things in Australia and, and England, but uh, some doctors, I mean, this was, keep in mind, the late 1800s, early 1900s, gave awful advice. You know, uh, right. what, why don't you smoke, you know, five cigarettes a day or cigars a day? That will, that will help your lungs. I mean, that, that would be terrible advice for anybody right. today. Uh, one, one or two doctors recommended surgery to, to cut the vocal cords, to, you know, so he would have more freedom. I mean, insane stuff. <laughs> and uh, I think... Some doctors did say, well, you've just got to rest, you know, rest for, don't talk to anybody for a month or whatever it was, or a week. And so he, you know, he was one of these guys that, that wanted to try everything out and really right. take it. It was his profession. The, I mean, it, his job yeah. was on the line. Right. So he tried that, you know, he would try not saying a word for a week and then he would do a performance. And after, you know, halfway through or all the way through, he was, he was just spent and his voice was gone. So he thought there's got to be something that's going on that I'm not realizing and nobody else seems to be realizing. Uh, and so the, the most incredible thing about him is he had this way of self-evaluating mm. and he watched himself in mirrors, many different mirrors from different angles. And he watched and noticed what he was doing with his body, with his small muscles, with his preparatory things. I mean, even things that you wouldn't think are related to producing sound in the voice. You know, what are my arms doing? What are my hips doing? What am I doing with my, my lower back or something to prepare? And over, over a number of years, he started to notice certain patterns or certain habits that he would do when he would start to inflect or start to vocalize something. He would, you know, tense up something in his neck, probably something in his, his spine. And, and that would affect the quality of the voice and, things would be compressed. So he developed this technique as a way to, to combat that. Now, it's very tough to just change habits. And the more we now know about science, and you know, I, I read a, a book recently, The Talent Code, and it talks about myelination, where you're basically building up uh, myelin uh, from, that's where you're, that's the sheath around the neural networks, basically. So you're sending these signals from your brain to different parts of your body. And right. uh, the the sheath, the myelinated sheath that has the most myelin on it is going to be faster. It's a faster conduit for that message. So that's going to be what you do. Right. So when we think of just, oh, just change your habit, just break, just, you know, it's not very easy. We're, we're habitual beings. And it's very hard. Well, to here's that. the thing. Try to brush your teeth with your opposite hand. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, that's hard. the first time you try to do it, I promise it's nearly impossible. You'll, you'll, you'll stick your toothbrush up your nose. You're, yeah. I mean, you're just like, this is crazy. And yeah. you think you, you just feel like a, a dimwit trying to do it. And it's just because you've, you've never, you know, built up any myelin in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's very hard. And, and some things we have sort of the genetic predisposition, but it's, it's tough to change your habits and not only physical habits, but the way we think and the way we, we, uh, process something we, you know, we, we might hear something that's a trigger and immediately, oh, I've got to act this way. It's the sort of fight or flight response. And, right. and uh, so to, to back out of that or to change that even, or even not to do it, just that is, is very difficult. So he, he thought, well, it's, it's going to be nearly impossible for me to just change to do something else. So I've got to revert back to some, some primal state. And uh, he noticed that at least in terms of his walking habits and his walking style, he had gained or developed habits over his many years of life that, that weren't conducive to a good posture or to a good um, support system for the voice. And he noticed babies walk correctly. They have a very good posture and, and they lead with certain, you know, they lead with their head. 
their heads are typically quite large for their bodies. So um, they, they just have a different approach. And so what he did is he kind of developed this, I would say, three-step process. I'm sure different people can break it up differently. But when you're about to do something, in this case, he was about to orate or sing or speak, um, the first thing you do is just not do it. And that sounds simple, but when you're about to do an action, you would just stand still and notice what's going on. Where is his neck? Where is his head? Where is his spine? Where are, are his arms? What are his shoulders doing? What is What are his hips doing? How about his feet, his toes? Is he curling his toes? All those things he would just start to notice at, for many weeks, probably many months too, just stopping what he's supposed to be doing and noticing what his body is doing instead. And he started to realize that all these things were getting tense and, and working against one another. Uh, and he was expending a lot more energy uh, fighting himself, basically. So mm. once you get past that initial stage of stopping what you're doing, then w one might think you just go to doing the new thing, but it's not so easy. So right. the next step, so the first step was just called inhibition. That's what he called it. And that, that's not a new term. I mean, Sigmund Freud had, had used that as well. Uh, so the, the second thing that he, that he did after sort of the, the inhibition was um, to, when, when you stop doing something, then you think about the action that you wanted to do. Let's say it was to raise my arm, my right arm. So I think about raising my right arm after I've stopped myself from doing it. And then as I'm about to raise my right arm or think about or send that signal, my right arm, I don't, and I do something totally different. Maybe I blink my eyes you know, or, or whatever. And, and I remember that um, my first, maybe my, my second or third lesson, doing that sort of thing, it's like retraining the circuitry and in your brain. And basically you want to do one thing and you're kind of shutting off that onto it and say, oh, right. let's, let's just go somewhere else. Let's get away from that because you're so used to going down that path and your, your brain, your body isn't used to finding another path and you need to let it find a, a more natural path. You know, it's almost as if like, if you had a, um, like if it was, if you, you know, how a record player works where it's, you know, it's on a groove and the needles on this groove and it's, it's moving around and around. But if you scratch up that record player, it's going to find other grooves. That's going to maybe not be so pleasing, but it's, if we, if we've been working on the same groove the whole time and we need to change the groove, sometimes it, it means we got to scratch up the old, you know, the old yeah. groove first. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds, that's what it sounds like to me. What, what, what it's, yeah. It's very, that's a kind of cool. I never thought of that analogy, but kind of works. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, instead of going down, let's say pathway A, and you eventually want to end up at pathway B, you can't just switch over. You've got to stop pathway A. And then when you're about to go down A, try to go down like pathway C, something else to at least right. get, get yourself away and give yourself the option of going down another pathway. And then the third step is once you've kind of stopped what you're doing and you, you are about to do your motion or whatever action, you do something else, you stop that. And then after that, you can allow, try to just allow yourself to do the motion that you think you want to do. And hopefully, I mean, not always, but hopefully your body will take a different course of action. Uh, of course, it's much easier when you have a teacher that will guide you in those approaches. But, um, it, it really is incredible when you do that. And I remember like lifting my leg or something. I was lying down and just lifting my leg a certain way. Uh, and it felt so different. I was having, I was having a slight muscle spasms before. And actually when I lifted it correctly, I was having different muscle spasms because the muscles weren't used to working in that fashion. Mm. Uh, and so I was like, Oh, this is, I'm kind of shaking and I'm not used to that. Yeah. Well, your muscles haven't worked like that for a long time. They've sort of atrophied. Uh, yeah. and so, and you've either, you've, you've, uh, compensated for them. It's like when you, when you injure yourself, uh, on one knee, let's say, uh, you compensate with the other knee and you get so used to that for so many years that when the first knee heals, you're still, uh, you're still limping, limping a certain way. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, and so this is, this is often a, uh, a solution when we talk about phantom limbs, you know, there, there are a lot of new developments in how to cure things like phantom limbs. And it's, it's really about retraining the brain and almost fooling the brain sometimes. And it, it's very closely related or it's akin to this. So, so anyway, that's the sort of three-step process. And then you kind of get used to what you're doing. There are exercises and postures that you can practice, but that's the, in a nutshell, how so to let's retrain. Talk about, 
um, your uh, well, first of all, so so because it, it, it's interesting. Obviously, the voice is a physical thing, but mm-hmm. but you know, standing up or walking, um, uh, how does that relate specifically to the voice? And also, maybe a because that might be a simple answer, but 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 the second part of that question is how did that turn into um, something that maybe a pianist can relate to? Like, like how does, how does that help a pianist or another instrumentalist? Um, and, and because of the obvious, I guess, I guess the obvious cho- uh, uh, direction would be, okay, an actor. So the next, you know, person would be like a vocalist, a singer. Okay. I can see how that would be very useful and very helpful. But, but I mean, we're talking about a piano, which, which physically is a far different animal than singing and projecting in that way. Um, so maybe, can, can you discuss yeah. that a little bit? Well, I think the main, um, the main thing we have to realize and something that Western medicine is also coming to realize as we become, become more global is that it's, it's a very holistic approach. And for, uh, for someone to say that, well, you're producing tone with your voice or whatever. So of course it's going to have to do, do with your posture. Uh, all these things are interrelated and interconnected. So even the way you're standing on your heels is going to affect the support for your diaphragm, which is going to affect, you know, the, how your throat is elongated or not, which is going to affect the tone, the timbre of your voice. All those things are interrelated. Same thing when you make any sort of muscle movement, um, Athletes know this all the time. They they train extremely, uh, you know, specifically on certain muscle parts, but they train other things too. I mean, just because you're you're playing table tennis, let's say, and and I train fairly highly in table tennis, and you have a lot of hand-eye coordination, you have a lot of technique in your arm, but I tell you, there's a ton of cardio training. There's a lot of footwork training. There's a lot of balance training. All these things are interrelated. So, you know, with music, we somehow. I remember our discussion with Ingela Onstead that we somehow think that we we don't need to worry about the psychological aspect or the the physical toll it takes on our body. We kind of put that aside and we never admit that we're we're in need or we're in pain or we have to work through. It's just work work through it, you know. Um, if you can't do it, you're not talented per se. But uh, musicians really use a lot of muscles and and very fine muscles and and small muscles uh, to a to a very precise degree. And if we don't know how all of those work together and how your your lower back support is going to affect how your arm weight uh, is and how that will affect your tone at the piano, if we don't understand that, we're not going to produce good results. Yeah, I think so. specifically when it comes to the piano, and obviously that, that's, the, that's the instrument, that and the voice is what I understand the best. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure if, if a violinist were here, he can make this you know a very similar... Um, statement, but, but the, the piano, like when I play the piano, it really is an, uh, it's like a, a a speaker for myself. It's like an amplification of myself. When Mm -hmm. I play a tone that it's not just the, you're not just hearing the piano, but you're actually hearing me Mm -hmm. um, play the piano, which is a difference. (laughs) Yeah. And, 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 and um, it's also why, you know, sampled instruments on computers aren't, quite the same as the real thing (laughs) yeah but um but my point is 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 that the way that 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 the that these instruments are played um is an extension of ourselves and our physical um you know not to get too strange but but like it's it's an expression of 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 our souls which is is expressed through our body which is amplified through the instrument that we choose to play yeah yeah, I mean, the voice is the most direct link because that really is who you are. And I think that's why being a vocalist is so difficult because uh, if somebody doesn't like your voice or like your singing, it's, you know, it's it's hard to separate that from who you really are. It's like, right. that's just who you are. But whereas with the piano, I can play and maybe somebody doesn't like it and, and I can chalk it up to, well, maybe they don't know the piece or it was a bad piano or, you know, any number right. of excuses. But I... Uh, if you don't have a good voice per se, or somebody doesn't like your voice, it's it's hard to um, separate yourself from that. So, yeah, but again, it's it's all about interconnectedness uh, or interconnectedness, and um, how, like you say, how you produce a tone, a sound, your approach to it, all of that is is just an amplification 
you know, or a manifestation of who you are, well, culturally, I, I, physically, whatever. You know, I was funny. I was I was playing in, in uh, my church a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. um, uh, and and maybe two two days later or something, I, I received an email. It was actually from one of my students, and uh, and they said, you know, hey, um, we were in your church the other day, and. Um, we walked in and we sat down. We couldn't see who was playing the piano, but I turned, they were visiting their grandmother. I turned to my grandmother and said, that really sounds like, you know, Mr. Mike, my, my music teacher. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but he, they couldn't see me. They couldn't see what was going on, but like they, they couldn't, it just sounded like me. And, uh, and then they, then they realized it was me. Um, and, it, but it is such a, you know, I, I think, um, the, 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 what am I trying to say? As a reflection or how it's, yeah, it's a reflect, like, like everybody, like just like everybody has their own, like a thumbprint. It's a thumbprint. Exactly. It's a thumbprint. And, and as an artist part, I think part of the skill that we need to, you know, learn and hone is our own voice. You know, whether, Mm -hmm. whatever instrument we're using for that, it is our own. It's, it's, it's a way to express, our creativity and our, uh, you know, honesty, whether it's our own piece or Mozart or whatever, that's part of what being an artist is. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And the body can, and the body can get in the way, which is why these Alexander technique I think is an important thing. Yeah. I think that's the biggest thing is getting in the way, you know, your body can do amazing things. The body is, is an incredible tool if used properly. But, um, I would say, I mean, maybe this will, put me on bad ground in some ways, but I just, I think most people don't really know what their body is capable of or how to use it Mm. uh, to the maximum effect, you know, and I don't all the time either. I, I, even as I'm sitting here right now and I reflect, I'm thinking, ah, I'm not really sitting in the right way. I'm not concentrating on the direction of uh, where my head is leading and, and all that. And, and my, my knees should be opposing each other, kind of leading to the outside and, opposed uh, opposed from the ankles which should be leading to the inside and down you know i could be concentrating on all these things it takes effort and uh once you 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 do it a lot you get better at it and you get quicker at it but um you know the first few months of me taking some lessons it was a very tough uh, initial process and i started to sense differences in my body and and different ways i was moving and approaching things but, you know, once I would start playing piano, let's say, and I'd already played for 20 years, I'd revert to a lot of old habits, and bad habits. Right. And I think that's very tough. And that sort of self-awareness and ability to, to change, especially when you've been used to something for so long, and this gets a little bit into the philosophical side of, of Alexander Technique and why I think it's important, um, to be able to change those things and recognize it, you know, you think it's right because you're used to it but maybe it's not the right way or the best way or the most economical way to do something or, or to right. think about something. That's, uh, that's very humbling. And I would say most people just can't face that. It's, it's harder than we think. And I think most people, Oh, I, I can change. I can change my mind. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, so, especially nowadays when we see what goes on, just a little thing somebody says, will will just put us back on the defensive and, and make us dig our heels into some idea. Uh, there's a very tough i can't remember who said it but somebody important (laughs) (laughs) some sage right some sage some writer you know some somebody but but Uh and and of course i'm going to be you know uh, not not saying exactly i'll be paraphrasing it yes but but that concept is like the one of the one of the differences between humans and animals is the fact that we that there's a space that we can reflect upon uh what has happened to us or what we think we should do and there's a space in between that allows us to reflect and make a decision on whether we should or shouldn't or how we should approach something. Um, and and I, that's one of the things I really love about this. It's almost a meditation in the sense that, you know, when we're doing a physical thing, it forces us to stop and, 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 and discover or, or, um, you know, think about, even just think about like, how are we going to approach something? Yeah. Um, well, I'll write on that a tool. bit. Yeah. We, we do have animal instincts and actually, you know, as we get to know more and more about certain animals too, we, we realize that there's thought and reflection and, and humanity. Right. Right. We often see humanity in animals and it's just like, well, they're also beings, you know, they might not have the same 
yeah. uh, level or whatever. But but we have these instincts, and we're instinctual beings for the most part. And it's uh, it, may, it takes a higher level thinking, and I don't I don't mean a better, but just a, a higher level and more energy to really take a step back, look at a situation, um, you know, question everything properly, and and then come to a conclusion that might not be the same conclusion we had before. Uh, and I always say, and we've talked about this before, that if everybody studied music, this world would be a better place. Yeah, uh, I'm sure each, you know, if everybody studied medicine, this world would be, if everybody studied law well, it'd be a better place. But there's something about music, uh, not just the detail-oriented, you know, facet of it and the body that you have to train. It's really like an Olympic sport in a way, at mm -hmm. least playing the piano. It's a, it's a full body workout. Um, the emotional side that you have to develop, the analytical side, but also just that self-reflective side where you're constantly trying to achieve something better and higher than you are and, and uh, relearn, unlearn, learn, you know, all these different, different things. And uh, it's, well, it's, it's very, humbling. It, I, I, that was the word I was, I was going to say. It's, it's a very humbling thing to, to um and and i say that in the best respect like it's, it's yeah hum, it's, it takes a humble person to to think about something they've done their entire life and and completely say well maybe there's a better approach mm -hmm. often i'll i'll say this and i'll probably backtrack but some of the greatest musicians i've ever come across <clears throat> and i don't mean just somebody who has you know incredible talent or great de dexterity or whatever has, has achieved some fame, but really the, the deepest, truest, most well-rounded sorts of musicians have a humility about them. Now, of course, I can think of examples where that's not the case uh, and, and where like so-and-so has quite a big right. ego and yet they're still a fantastic musician or whatever. But I, I always revert back to those that I think are really the, the greatest minds and musicians and, yeah. and they're, they're humble in their, in their own way. Uh, yeah. There has to be a distinction, too, between self-assurance and ego. And I think that's a fine line that I, I often mix up for myself or cross. I mean, I, I know I have an ego, but being self-assured and knowing uh, what you know and, and about a certain field, that's that's different than having an ego. And Because the ego, I think, starts to put others down instead of right. lifting everybody up. Um, so. So let's let's talk about a little bit like if, if somebody wanted to experience obviously it, huge recommendations go go find somebody who who who's, who is a practitioner and can mm -hmm. you know can coach you through some of this stuff yeah but but if somebody wanted to just say hey you know uh, what is one or two things that I can experience that that maybe will allow me to um, you know experience the Alex quote the Alexander technique for myself yeah well I think like any any uh hands-on or, or some sort of field that's such a practical field. I mean, like music is such a practical thing. We've been teaching obviously online for a year now, but it's not quite the same as when you're in person. There, there are some things where I would say, honestly, it's not a big deal if you're learning it online or in a book. Um, it's, it's nice to have a good teacher you know, in front of you, but you can, you can read and, and understand those things. But something that's practical and physical, you really need a teacher yeah. And so I just want to reiterate that it's, you can go to, I think there's alexandertechnique.com or something. And there are other websites with, uh, where you can find a certified practitioner and keep in mind these, these people really train. I think the, uh, the number of hours, once you've taken your own courses and you've taken, um, I think it's like a year worth of, of courses you need to do, I don't know, 1600 hours worth of, of training with, with a mentor or with a master and, and giving, uh, training and Alexander lessons to other people. Yeah. Uh, something like 1600 hours worth of training for that. It's, that's a lot. You really right. start to get to know you yourself and somebody else. Uh, and, and then you can become certified. And then of course you always have to get recertified. So the people that have gone through all that rigorous training really do know what they're doing. Uh, another, I mean, YouTube is such an incredible tool nowadays. When I, when I started doing this, I don't know when YouTube started. 15 years ago i mean maybe yeah it was, well, I think it was, it was pretty small i think it was 2010 or 2008 or something okay it, it might have been but the first few years is pretty small anyway yeah. I, I started alexander technique in 2003 i think it was and uh yeah that you could just search online to get all these videos like <laughs> right so one thing is is to do that i've seen maybe, quite a few 
They're not. And maybe um, Elias, uh, after we're done recording here, if, if there's a one or two good videos that you can maybe send to me, I can put in the show notes. Sure. Uh, some of them, again, it's like watching a, well, in piano, you can watch good master classes online, but it's just not the same as being right. there and having the one-on-one you know, hands-on well, approach you, with you and your particular needs. Yeah, no, that's so, that, and that's a fact. Like everybody, everybody's different. Yeah, everybody's different. <laughs> yeah. But I think reading also. He he wrote a very short book called The Use of Self. That's a really good guide and, and a start. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another book that's written by one of his students, Alcantara, and it's called um, Indirect Procedures. That's that's a very extensive book, but it does talk about some of the the uh, actual techniques and, and exercises and positions and postures that you can do um, to kind of get your body into this new new use of self. Well, let me ask you this, and I don't know if you know the answer to this. How has Alexander Technique, how has that evolved? I mean, obviously this is over, you know, a hundred years ago that, that this technique was first introduced. Um, what? How has it evolved since then? Um, and, and how have people maybe added on to the, to the art? Yeah, I don't know how well I can answer that. I will say, yes, it is about 150 years old. And uh, he did have a fairly famous student, Feldenkrais, who developed his own method, the, the Feldenkrais method. And it's similar. I, I haven't really studied that per se. What I've heard is that that's a little bit more based on um, based on the skeletal structure and maybe not so much with the muscular structure, although I'm sure they're related. Right. And I think... The Alexander technique is, in a way, generalized enough so that you can think of it as a philosophy. I don't know if Feldenkrais method um, has that larger approach, but I, again, I do not, I have not yeah. taken lessons in that. I have not uh, really seen it in action. I, I have some friends that are practitioners of Feldenkrais, and you know, sometimes it's indistinguishable from Alexander technique, and but they claim that there are many instances where it diverges. Um, I gotcha. just don't know where those what those are. So that's one sort of development where one of his students took it and took it either a step farther or just a step in, a, in another direction. Right. Um, I think as as Western medicine has improved, uh, especially in the last 100 years, 150 years, um, a lot of the things that he was seeing have probably now been just tested and studied and, you know, from a data-driven point of view. It's the same thing with acupuncture. I mean, acupuncture is, what, 4,000 years old or something. And right. only in the last 100, 200 years will will Western medicine, you know, trained doctors say, oh, well, you know, it, it is about the blood flow and there are certain trigger points and there are certain things where we need to get. Well, even it's really, I mean, even you say the last, you know, 100 years or so, I, I think last even, 50 even, or, or last, 10. <laughs> I know even even today, there's many people that would, that would call that quack medicine. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. And and I think that people that are that are maybe pushing it as, as the, the problem we have to, or the trouble we see is, is uh, seeing it as an alternative or a replacement. And that's not always. Or a healthy. full like religious philosophy in some or cases. Full, right. Right. <laughs> and it's, it's not that. And, um, and it, I don't, I don't think if you're true to it, you should see it as that either. I, I think the, the best way I can think of the difference between, let's say, Eastern medicine and Western medicine is Western medicine is great for acute issues uh, and Eastern medicine is, is more holistic. But look, if you've got a broken bone uh, and you need to get it set, you know, you don't, you don't go to an herbalist. Right. You, you go to a doctor and he sets your bone. Um, yeah. Say, but then it gets a little hairy when you when you start talking about, OK, cancer and and, uh, you know, you, you have these people that just want to eat, you know, just go like the fruit, uh, vegetable juice kind of approach. Yeah. Like, well, that that will help, and that might have helped 15 years ago, and it, and it still might cleanse. There might be some people that are cured, but you've got to you've got to seek expert medical help, right? As well, that's why we have an ACA. That's why we have, you know, governing bodies, and and they're not always the most accurate. You know, they're learning too. It's like the scientific method. It's not it's not an answer, but it's always searching for an answer. And, well, and, and that's we, and. That's the thing I really admire about as you tell the story of Alexander, like he truly embodied the the scientific method. Like, mm-hmm. like it, for him, it was he was trying to solve a specific problem, and all these other things or these other benefits, um, you know, was was part of that holistic solving of the problem of trying to keep his voice in shape for you know f- over the course of his career. 
Yeah. Yeah. And at the time when we think of it, uh, it's so weird how maybe things have flipped, but the experts of the day, the doctors of the day were giving terrible advice, but look at where the medical field was back then. Um, You know, if we think about it, he was born very shortly after the civil war. And I mean, what, what were people doing in those days? Okay, here, bite on this stick while I cut your leg off. Right, um, right. Hopefully you don't die from gangrene. That, it's just crazy to think. How, but but the problem is nowadays we we are often skeptical. Not we, I'm not, but uh, people are often skeptical of, of experts in any field. Right. Um, and their first reaction is um, not to believe. Not only like, okay, that's probably right. Let me question it. But almost a skeptic, uh, an unhealthy skepticism. Yeah. But I think yeah. Alexander had a very healthy skepticism not of just others, but also of himself. What was he really doing? And he had some hum, uh, humble approach to that. And he, you know, he went to a lot of doctors. Look, he maybe didn't like the advice, but he went to them and he right. got many different doctors of uh, advice. So and I'm sure you learned from, like, I, it, I would be interested to know, like, what made him think like how he walked affected his voice? Like, like, mm-hmm. like, was that, did somebody say something you know, or, or did, did he feel a twinge or was there one time when his voice was okay and he noticed he was walking lighter? Like, like, you know, to me that, yeah. I don't know how, how well we would know that, but it's just interesting. Yeah. I don't know how we know. I'm sure it's a little bit of each. And, you know, he, like I said, he was literally in front of mirrors, many different mirrors for months, if not years on end, watching everything that was going on. I, I mean, he couldn't film him himself, but as careful in a, a, an approach and a self sort of awareness approach as he could to what am I doing? What's this little, let, let me check this part of my body, what it's doing when I, when I do this, just super aware. And you, as you practice that too, it's like practicing mindful meditation. You start yeah. to get better at it. Um, it doesn't come immediately. Okay. So I want, so maybe let's talk about your, that lay down technique. Cause I think that is maybe the simplest thing for somebody who just says, Hey, I want to try something and see how it feels. I think that might be the simplest. Um, yeah, I guess the, the biggest thing, again, some, having somebody lead you in it is is the best. Yeah. But um, for a while, and I should probably do this, I use, I use about 15 minutes and, and just lay down. But the main thing is the position of it. You know, you're, you're on your back flat. It's good to get on a, um, a fairly comfortable but supportive surface. Like you don't want to be on a soft bed or a couch, but I like to lay on a carpet or a rug. Um, and having a hard book, maybe an inch or two inches thick, depending. Again, a practitioner will know where your body is at, you know, and, and how thick a book you'll need for your arresting your, uh, your your head, um, you know, last the first vertebra. Mm-hmm. And so basically you're resting your head on your book and then your knees are bent kind of at around a 45 degree angle, uh, hands on your stomach. And as I do that, as I'm in that sort of supine position, if you will, uh, I'm just going through my whole body as you do with a lot of relaxation techniques. And they say, think of your toes, think of this. But as I'm thinking of different parts of my body, I'm uh, thinking about the direction that they take. So a lot of uh, Alexander technique is about the directionality uh, of different of different parts of your body and how they are always working in, op- in opposition with one another to gain length or space. So for example, we always want length and space in our spine that gives us a lot more freedom, you know, better blood flow. I mean, that, that's the sort of Western medicine speaking, better blood flow and, and right. more connectivity. But um, so when I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking of my knees sort of going up and out away from each other without splaying, without falling open. My ankles, I'm thinking of going in opposition to my knees, kind of into the floor and almost not, you don't want to press them, but you just have to think of the direction and often your body will just do it. Uh, we have three different types of, of uh, muscles that work with posture. And this is a weird thing for me to learn because we always think of a muscle contracting to work. You know, you, you squeeze your bicep, your muscle contracts. And so if you want to go the opposite motion, your tricep, you know, will, will contract and pull your arm open. But in fact, for structural support and for our posture, um, some muscles work without contracting or, or um, elongating. They, they just work by staying the same shape, basically. And some muscles work by actually elongating uh, and some are a lot work by contracting. So um, that's just something to think about and, and to realize. I forgot the medical terms for the, all those three types yeah. of muscles. 
But uh, anyway, so I think of my ankles sort of going into the floor, expanding away from my knees, my knees expanding away from my, my ankles, my toes kind of reaching out. I'm not trying to purposefully reach for something, but they're just, you know, relaxing out. And so that's the lower part of my body, my, my uh, lower back. I'm trying to think of sinking into the floor, letting the behind the stomach, you know, and behind the lower, lower ribs, let's say, really go into the floor, sink into the floor. Um, up into my upper body, I'm thinking of my shoulders going back into the floor as well. But I, I'm not thinking of pushing them or pulling them. This is a, a misconception about posture. Like when I was a kid, I would watch, if I was watching TV, my mom would say, well, if you're going to watch TV, sit up straight. And what is sit up straight means, you know, everybody can imagine that you just, you tuck in your stomach, you pull in your neck and oh, now I'm straight. I look actually right. it's terrible posture for sitting up straight uh, because you want your lower back to fall, fall out and kind of fall to the back uh, and, and elongate that spine. And you don't want to pull in your chin. You actually want to let your head kind of come up like you're a marionette, like somebody's holding you by a string and right. just pulling you up. But you don't want to stretch it up. It's it's not about actively pushing or pulling muscles. So when you're on a right. ground, it's all it's, a thought process. It's all yeah. like it's like it, it's almost. It's funny. I, I, I when I teach my kids, you know how to how to drive. You know when we get on the highway, it's like you you don't want to think turn into the next lane. You want, or you don't want to actually turn to the next lane. You want to think, turn into the next lane, and then your body will automatically do what you need it to do. Mm -hmm. You know, because if you actually turn into the next lane, you're going to overcorrect. You're going to, you yeah. know, without knowing what what you're doing the first time. And so it's yeah. um, it's the same kind of thing. Like you don't want to you don't want to actually extend your neck out, but you just want to think and think lengthen. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's a lot about the thought process going into it, and your body will do the rest, even if you're slightly unconscious or it's it's a subconscious thing. Uh, you don't know it's doing it. You know, your heart is beating. You don't make it beat. It just beats. Right, uh, right. So I, I think That's of sort point. of the shoulders going back, the and the elbows are in opposition with my shoulders. So they're working in a different direction. And my neck is elongating. My head is kind of going up and just I pretend that it's, it's going out. And I remember um, when I had a lie down session with, with a practitioner, she was just at the kind of holding or cradling my neck basically with my head. And she could somehow i guess feel some tension so i was in this position and she was just holding it trying to help it elongate and of course gravity is helping a little bit too gravity is kind of pulling everything apart um but she noticed some tension and she just gave me a direction she said let your knees release or whatever and and then i was like i'm trying i'm trying i'm trying i'm trying i couldn't and so she was just holding holding that the neck and my head basically the, the back of my head and then finally, my knees released. I just and and then she felt. She said, oh, "There you go." And wow. I mean, nothing happened. Nothing moved. I, and I said, "How did you know?" I I didn't say anything. I didn't make a sound. I didn't move. She's just. I I could feel all that connectivity through. There there was some tension, and it was being affected by your knees not releasing in your neck. So that's a kind of interconnectivity. That's it's almost spooky. It's like mind reading, but um, right. they can really sense it. And I'm I've gotten better at. Uh, when I watch somebody play, for example, play piano, maybe they're doing a certain thing. I'm like, I, I know the sound isn't what I want, and I could tell them to play it this way or that way, but they're not going to really know how to produce that because there's some basic thing that their body's doing that doesn't allow them to uh, yeah. produce that sound. So I've got to say, okay, you have to do this X, Y, or Z and, and release this, and that, then you can maybe produce the sound that your ear will tell you. That's so powerful. Yeah, it's really it true. It's tough, but it's it can be very useful. Right. It it it's like, um, you know, when 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 I play basketball or when I coach basketball, and and the first the first thing people want to. Do 